Do turn, please, then, to Psalm 52. To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Salah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Well, this evening we're given in this 52nd Psalm a picture of an olive tree planted in the house of the Lord. In God's providence, we were reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 3 of the house of the Lord. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So God has brought us the the house of God to consider this morning and this evening. This olive tree planted in the house of the Lord, it's a picture of the life of faith. At first sight, perhaps not a particularly exciting picture. Olive trees are rather drab in color. The most exciting thing that they do is produce a crop of olives, perhaps once a year or so. But actually, it's a rather beautiful picture when we understand it aright and in context. This picture of the life of faith, King David gives us in the context of being hunted by jealous King Saul. At the time contemplated in this this psalm, David had been anointed as king, as, as future king, but he was not yet installed as king. He was a fugitive on the run from Saul. And at that time, as we'll see in a moment, David is distraught and lamenting at an appalling thing that Saul has done. The lament is the first seven verses or so of the psalm. But then we come to a rather stark shift in tone when he moves from his reflections on that terrible event to his reflections on his own situation in the last couple of verses. So what I want us to do is to see the beauty of the picture that David gives us and its usefulness for us. And I hope that that will strengthen us to stand firm in the faith, like well-rooted olive trees, whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil may be throwing at us at the moment or may throw at us in the future. 
So let's start by simply considering the context that we're given in the first seven verses fairly briefly. Then we're going to focus on the details of, of David's olive metaphor in verses 8 and 9 before we think about what it means for us. The context, then, is terrible. The context is a betrayal and an event of great wickedness. You can see from the heading, which is just as much part of Scripture as the rest of the psalm, that Doeg the Edomite, who is um, no relation whatsoever of Doug the Macalamite, Doeg the Edomite has betrayed David by telling Saul who is pursuing David and wanting to kill him, that David has been seen at the house of Ahimelech. These are events described for us in some detail in 1 Samuel, chapters 21 and 22. I can summarize them very briefly, and I think it's helpful to do so, because then we'll see how David shifts from looking at that situation to his own. David then is on the run with his men. A number of years have passed since he struck down Goliath, And Saul is now intensely jealous of him and intends to destroy him. David and his company come to Ahimelech, the priest of Nob. And Ahimelech helps them by giving them bread and also the sword of Goliath, which for some reason had been stashed there. Ahimelech thought that David was on a mission for Saul, not on the run from him. But this man, Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman happened to see all of this and then went and told Saul. Ahimelech was summoned by Saul and quite reasonably protested his innocence. But nonetheless, Saul commanded Doeg to strike down not only Ahimelech but his whole family and everyone else in the city of priests where he lived and ministered, men, women and children, even the oxen and donkey. Just one man escaped, a son of Ahimelech, to bring David the grim news. And David is greatly grieved. But more than that, he blames himself for what happened. He says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house, he tells the grieving son. It is a horrendous crime that Saul and Doeg have committed. David is grief-stricken, and that is only made worse by the personal responsibility that he feels for what has happened. Reflecting on these events, sometime later, David picks up his pen and writes this psalm. Unsurprisingly, three-quarters of the psalm is a lament, a cry of pain, also an outpouring of righteous anger directed at this, this mighty man who has done this wicked thing. Most of it is directly addressed to Doeg himself. It's actually not totally clear whether it's, whether it's directed at Doeg or at Saul. All of the tr- charges that he makes against Doeg stand equally against Saul himself. Saul commanded the atrocity. Doeg carried it out. Um, but from the heading, it's probably directed more at Doeg. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? You plot destruction. You love evil more than good. You love lying words, words that devour. In other words, he's saying to Doeg, how could you have done this? Have you no fear of God? Do you have no idea that you are under the eye of a God who is fundamentally good, 
a God of unchangeably steadfast love. Notice how those ideas are juxtaposed even in that first verse. You've done this. Do you not know the God who is like that? And do you not know that because of his commitment to what is good, he will bring you down forever? He will uproot you from the land of the living. Your folly, Doeg and Saul, is so great and so self-destructive that you will forever be an object of ridicule for the righteous. You see that in verse 6. Maybe you think that reference to the righteous laughing seems a little out of place. We should lament over evil and not laugh at it. But the word refers to derision as much as humor. And in fact, it's, it's the same word that we find in Psalm 2, referring to God's laughter at the foolish plottings of kings and rulers who take their stand against the Lord's anointed. So Doeg had made his bed and he will lie on it. He has chosen to side with Saul against David, who is the Lord's anointed. It's an utterly foolish thing to do. The man who does not make his refuge, make God his refuge, is quite simply a man who seeks his own destruction, verse 7. And that is just as true today as it was 3,000 years ago when these events took place. If you do not make God your refuge, you are a man who is seeking his own destruction. Well, given the ugliness of Doeg's betrayal and the massacre of the innocents, it's unsurprising that David should spend seven verses lamenting the conduct of this man and indeed lamenting the destiny of this man. But what then is perhaps more surprising is the sudden shift in mood that we then find as we move on to the last couple of verses at the end of the psalm. From the ugliness of Doeg's conduct and destiny to the beauty, spiritually considered, of David's situation and destiny. His physical situation, of course, at that time, was far from beautiful. But now let's consider the metaphor that he gives us that describes his spiritual situation, the olive tree. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. So we're going to look at a couple of details of his olive tree simile. And then we're going to look at the implications which David himself draws out from those details. First then, he says he's like a green olive tree. A simple enough picture. If it's green, it's living. If it's living, it's presumably fruitful in its season. It may not be a dramatic tree. It doesn't have the kingly grandeur of a mighty oak. It doesn't have the fragrance or the color of a beautiful rose. Its color is drab and not particularly impressive looking. There's nothing showy, really, about an olive tree. The language of Isaiah 53 is apt, which speaks of the servant of the Lord, of whom David is a forerunner, described there as being like a plant that has no form or majesty that we should look at it, no beauty that we should desire it. But it is green. 
The word there can mean green in color, but more than that, it means luxuriant or flourishing. It's used in Daniel chapter 4, for example, to describe King Nebuchadnezzar flourishing in his palace. David, even in his situation on the run from Saul, can regard himself as flourishing. Not in a king's palace, like Nebuchadnezzar, but so much better than that, in the house of God. A green and flourishing olive tree is healthy, it is alive, and it bears fruit. What a contrast between this this humble olive tree that's getting on with life peaceably and productively, and Doeg, the proud, mighty man who boasts and plots and schemes, pursuing his own interests, willing to destroy others in the process as he ingratiates himself with the rich and powerful souls of this world. Perhaps you have worked with people who will do anything to elevate themselves, even if it means treading others down in the process. But the olive tree does no harm to anyone. It lives quietly, simply, and productively. The second detail is even more significant. It is where this olive tree is planted, in the house of God. Now, in David's time, of course, where was the house of God? It was the tabernacle. Uh, We read about that this morning in 1 Chronicles 17. It was a movable tent. And that's a somewhat strange place to plant a tree. It doesn't seem quite right, unless David had in mind a tree and a plant pot on wheels or something, which I don't think he did. In David's metaphor, it simply stands for the believer dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Yes, David physically is on the run in the wilderness, but spiritually, he knows that he is securely rooted in the presence of the Lord. However turbulent, however unsettled his outward situation, he knows that he is dwelling in a place of absolute security and rest. And again, we can contrast that with what is told us about Doeg. Doeg thinks that he is so secure. He has an honored place in Saul's house. But he will find that his shelter is but a flappy tent, verse 5, which will give him no shelter at all from the coming wrath of God. God will break you down, Doeg. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. But then there's David, whose outward situation seems so precarious, but he stands eternally in God's house. How different things can appear to the world's eye. Doeg's Doeg's standing proud in the house of Saul, contrasted with homeless David scurrying from one hideout to another. The eye of faith can see what the physical eye cannot see. It is the one who has made God his refuge, who is actually secure, not the one who seeks his security in the favors of this passing world. So Doeg's tent will be torn down, however sturdy it looks to the world. David's house will stand forever because his dwelling place is the house of the Lord. Then there's another contrast we can draw out between David and Doeg. There are roots mentioned in verse 5, and implicitly there are roots mentioned in verse 8. Where are David's roots? They are immovably rooted in God's house. What about Doeg? He will be uprooted from the land of the living. Again, how different things look 
with the eye of faith. So that's the very simple picture of the olive tree that David gives us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to declare three implications, three corollaries of being like a green olive tree in the house of God. It's because he is securely rooted in God's house that he then goes on to declare, I trust, I will thank, I will wait. Let's consider each strand of that threefold declaration that flows out of his being rooted in God's house. He says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And that's both a declaration of faith and a declaration of his assurance. It's one thing to dwell securely today. It's another thing to know with assurance that you will still be in that secure place tomorrow. David is declaring here a confidence that the security he knows today, he will know forever. And the reason why he can be confident is because he knows the true fount and origin of that security. He tells us it is the steadfast love of God. Aha, says the skeptic, or indeed the Roman Catholic, or the Arminian, perhaps God does love you today. But has he really said what he will do tomorrow? What if he changes his mind tomorrow? What if you do something to displease him and cause him to change his mind? No, says David, when the eternal God has set his eternal love upon someone, that will not change because God himself does not change. He does not love as we love. He is not fickle. His love is steadfast. And David is here repeating what he has already told Doeg in in verse 1, talking of the steadfast love of God. It is a covenant love. It is as enduring as God's covenant is enduring. It is a work of Almighty God to take anyone into the covenant of grace. The rest of the Bible tells us that it is nothing less than a Trinitarian work of God to take someone into the covenant of grace. The Father sets his love upon his children in eternity. The Son becomes incarnate, taking to himself human nature so that he might pay for their sins on the cross. He redeems them. He makes them his bride forever. The Spirit inexorably moves their stubborn hearts to faith and love and obedience. It's Trinitarian work to bring you into the covenant of God's love. The triune God promises covenantally and irreversibly to complete the work that he begins in those he calls my people. So David knows that once planted in the house of God, he can declare his trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. That takes us to David's next declaration in verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. But what is the it that God has done to which David refers here? Well, how far back would you like to look? Is he thankful because, verse 8, God has settled his steadfast love upon him? Is he thankful because God has planted him in his house? Is he thankful because God has so differenced the faithful from those who will not make God their refuge? Verses 1 to 7. Surely it is all of these things that God 
has done. The point is, it is God who has done it. God has differenced the faithless from the faithful. And the faithful he has planted in his house. David knows that he did not plant himself in God's house. Have you ever seen an olive tree take up a spade and dig a hole and plant itself in the ground? When did a man ever regenerate his own stubborn heart and bring himself to faith? No, God has done it. David knows that. And so the only reasonable response, if God has done this great work for you, is the unceasing thankfulness that David expresses here. This side of the cross we know all the more clearly than David knew that God has done it. That is to say, done everything necessary for our salvation. What God would do was settled in eternity, that our reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness should be purchased at the cross by the second person of the Trinity and applied to us and brought home to us by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's why we'll be singing in a few minutes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and acknowledging that only the power of God and his alone can cleanse the leper's skin and melt the heart of stone. Trees don't plant themselves. Lepers don't heal themselves. Hearts of stone don't melt themselves. So let us join with David in saying thank you, because you, our great God, have done it. Therefore, glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. That is what every true believer wants to declare, as David does here. Lastly, then, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. God's name is God himself, as he has revealed himself to mankind. He has revealed himself by his covenant name, Yahweh, though that's not used in this psalm. His name is good, because God is good. And because God is good, he is forever faithful to his covenant promises. So David doesn't need to fret and to plot and to scheme and to seek his own advancement as Doeg was doing and take things into his own hands. Doeg is a great model for us, showing that we do not need to do any of those things. However much people around us may be pursuing their own interests and perhaps trampling on others in the process. David knew that he was the Lord's anointed and that the Lord in his time would raise him up to the throne and bring down the scheming Saul's and Doeg's of this world. And in that, he points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate model of these things. When he was in the hands of his enemies, he remained silent, like a lamb before the shearers. He didn't need to answer his human tormentors because he knew that his kingdom was not of this world. He knew that his father would raise him up to his eternal throne once his work on earth was done. Philippians 2, he did not look to his own interests. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So Christ was content to wait patiently, uh, as David says he will do here, knowing that he was utterly secure in the hands of his Father, knowing that God would highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name in his good time. 
So what does this mean for us? It means that you too, if you are a believer, are just as securely rooted in the house of God as David was. You are rooted there because you are securely united with the Lord Jesus Christ who is rooted there. You're united to him by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And therefore you too can wait patiently, quietly, trusting in the all-powerful, all-good name of the Lord to lead you through every trial that you face in this world and all the way to your eternal rest. Just one final thing to note. That is, this dwelling in God's house that the the psalmist describes here, this trusting and waiting, is no solitary activity or existence. David knows that he is not the only olive tree planted in the house of God. All of God's children are planted and rooted in his house. They all dwell in the presence of the godly. That is why it is so good to gather with our church family week by week. We are not designed to live as isolated trees on a hillside. We are to gather together as God's people and thank God forever together. Physically, you may feel very isolated. David often knew desperate isolation. Perhaps your workplace is a spiritual desert. You may be the only Christian there. Perhaps you're the only Christian in your family or in your college accommodation. Humanly speaking, you may feel very isolated. But the deeper and wonderful truth is that as a believer, you are rooted and planted not only in the house and presence of God, but also in the fellowship of all believers. And for that, we can thank God forever, because he has done it. Perhaps you don't feel that you are yet able to make the three declarations that David makes in these last couple of verses. Perhaps the idea of trusting and thanking God, whatever your life situation, seems very alien to you. Well, if that is you, then there is an exciting discovery for you to make, and that you will make if you will look to the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And then you too will discover what it means to dwell securely forever in the house of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that every believer stands rooted immovably in the house of the Lord forever. May we all leave here rejoicing in that security, knowing that if we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and by his spirit, we will know and enjoy your steadfast love forever. We thank you, Lord. Amen.